Hello, and welcome back to the 41st podcast in the ENT Expert Opinion series. We are back from an extended break, and we've got a number of great interviews on the editing table as we speak. Um, our two main interviewers, Dr. Niall Jefferson and Dr. Nicholas Jufus, have both been busy completing overseas fellowships, and they have both recently returned to Australia, which is the main reason for our absence. As always, if you have a topic suggestion or an expert recommendation, or if you'd like to get involved in the project, please get in touch with us on Twitter, Facebook, or at entexpertopinion at gmail. Enjoy the podcast. Hello, and welcome to this podcast in the ENT Expert Opinion series. My name is Dr. Nicholas Jufus, and today I'm coming to you from Miami in the USA with our guest expert, Professor Thomas Balcony, an otolaryngologist and neurootologist specializing in cochlear implantation. He is the Hotchkiss Endowment Distinguished Professor and Chairman Emeritus in the Department of Otolaryngology and Professor of Neurological Surgery and Pediatrics at the University of Miami Miller School of Medicine. Professor Balcony holds 14 US and international patents on cochlear implant technologies. Additionally, he has written three books and more than 300 scientific publications on the topic of ear surgery. In 2012, he founded the Institute for Cochlear Implant Training, a non-profit corporation based in Florida. The Institute provides three-month-long advanced training courses for surgeons, audiologists, and language specialists with the goal of improving patient outcomes in cochlear implant surgery. Further information on this can be found on the Institute's website at cochleaimplanttraining.com. Professor Balcony, welcome. Thank you. Good to be with you, Nicholas. To begin with, what do you feel are absolute and relative contraindications to cochlear implantation? Well, absolute contraindications first. There's uh, aplasia of the... uh, cochlea or cochlear nerve, and hypoplastic cochleas, which are smaller than four millimeters in diameter, uh, have not worked out well in my experience, and uh, I would no longer recommend implanting patients with that condition. Relative risk, uh, I should say uh, relative contraindications, occur when the risk is greater than the uh, proposed benefit. And this can occur from any number of situations, including medical conditions, uh, which place someone at high risk for anesthesia, lack of brain development. But most commonly, I think, is the relative contraindication that a hearing aid can be expected to provide as good a performance as a cochlear implant, in which case the surgery is not indicated. The risk of meningitis is one of the key concerns for surgeons undertaking cochlear implantation. What surgical techniques do you employ to decrease the risk pre, intra, and post-operatively? Well, immunization and uh, preoperative antibiotics are two things that uh, are well-established and non-surgical. But during the operation, we have an opportunity to do some things which will also reduce the risk. And this includes copious use of irrigation with saline. Uh, The saline can be combined with antibiotics in some cases. Some surgeons prefer to do that. 
But I think that the main benefit is the uh, mechanical removal of bone dust and blood clots that can form inside scalp pockets and uh, in the mastoid cavity and middle ear. Um, we want to limit electrode insertion trauma. And the best example of that is the higher rates of meningitis that occur with more traumatic electrode insertions. And these have been very well demonstrated. I like to avoid any semblance of a drain because, of course, drains are two-way streets. They, uh, hemostasis should be adequate to uh, avoid a drain and thereby avoid the chance of uh, bacterial contamination through the uh, extra opening. I also like to avoid any sort of mechanical apparatus, such as bone screws, straps, sutures, etc. Of course, exposure of the dura increases the risk of meningitis, and that should be avoided when possible. Um, and we should be uh, not hesitant to delay a case if a child turns up the morning of the operation with pharyngitis, a cough, bad case of the sniffles, and not just due to the risk in anesthesia, but also due to our desire to reduce the chances of uh, bloodborne cases of meningitis arising, especially in the pharynx. We want to uh, limit hospitalization where nosocomial hospital-acquired infections can be very serious and very difficult to treat. And finally, we can reduce the duration of surgery, and by doing that, uh, reduce the risk of meningitis. What are your thoughts on the role of cochlear implantation in tinnitus suppression or single-sided deafness? Uh, electrical stimulation with a cochlear implant definitely affects tinnitus. That's been clear for uh, two or three decades. About three-quarters of cochlear implant candidates report some change in tinnitus. Tinnitus improves in over half of them, but may be worse in 10% or so. There was a recent uncontrolled multicenter study by Quito in uh, ACTA that showed that implanting single-sided deafness reduced tinnitus, increased monosyllabic word recognition as well. However, uh, there's also literature uh, by Bento, who did a systematic review and showed no papers available for analysis with a high enough level of evidence to create an adequate review. So the lack of objective methods of measurement of tinnitus loudness in moderate to profound hearing loss, as well as the multiple factors impacting the perception of tinnitus, limit our progress in studying that disorder in cochlear implantation for single-sided deafness, as it does with tinnitus in general. A very difficult uh, subject to develop good data on. What intracranial complications are you aware of 
that have been described as a consequence of drilling the bony seat or tie-down holes for a cochlear implant. The life-threatening complications have been reported in our literature mostly involving the dura and its associated vasculature. These uh, reported complications include dural tears with CSF leaks, subdural and epidural hematomas, lateral sinus thrombosis, temporal lobe, and cerebral infarcts. Equally important, from uh, early studies at NYU in the late 90s all the way up through the present decade, we've seen that drilling bone wells and tie-down holes by necessity impact the dura in many cases and that they do not prevent migration of receiver stimulators. This calls into question the use of exposure of dura during the uh, seeding process for receiver stimulators and highlights the opportunity we have to reduce complications by avoiding drilling bony seats and tie-downs. In 2009, you published on a temporalis pocket technique for cochlear implantation, avoiding some of the risks of intracranial complications that you just mentioned. Can you please describe this approach in detail and discuss your results with this? The uh, pericranial pocket technique was originally developed at the behest of one of the cochlear implant manufacturers who was in the process of developing a new shape for receiver stimulators. The shape has since been adapt adopted by uh, uh, most of the manufacturers today, and it consists of a wider-based uh, receiver stimulator without a true pedestal that uh, is a lot flatter in nature. So two, that created two issues. One was that... Um, it didn't need to be recessed any longer, like the previous stacked receiver stimulators needed to be. And it also made drilling a seat for the receiver stimulator in bone much more difficult because the area required for the seat was virtually twice the size of the previous area. So a number of uh, different techniques are available to deal with that. One is to drill a seat, another is to drill part of a seat, and the one that uh, we uh, looked into and uh, that you just referred to in a publication was a pocket technique in which the device was firmly held in position but without drilling bone at all, uh, allowing us to avoid risks of uh, dural injury and exposure. The technique consists of uh, identifying the uh, avascular plane through an incision posterior to the uh, posterior crease by one centimeter. This is developed posteriorly in the same plane and then a pelvic type flap is elevated forward and working Posteriorly, at an angle that approaches 45 degrees in adults and is uh, somewhat flatter in children, uh, a tight-fitting pocket between the bone and the pericranium is uh, developed so that it 
tightly holds the receiver stimulator in position. Let's talk a little bit now about adaptive cochleostomy. What are the key determinants of whether to perform a bony or round window membrane cochleostomy, and what are the pros and cons of these two approaches? The assumption here that, that we make with adaptive cochleostomies is that we should adapt the method of opening the cochlea to the patient's anatomy and to the type of electrode being used rather than adapting the patient to our predetermined type of uh, opening the cochlea. So the term adaptive has to do with changing it so that it fits the situation that we're dealing with rather than claiming that one or the other technique is preferable. Each has its high points and low points, and uh, that's the basis of your question that I'll try to answer. The traditional uh, bony cochleostomy was uh, actually the second cochleostomy to be uh, used in a widespread way. The first was the round window approach that was used with single channel cochlear implants by Bell House. Later, Graham Clark uh, was a proponent of the bony cochleostomy for one particular reason. And that reason was the crista of the round window membrane. And this crista tended to hang up the electrodes as they were being inserted into scale of tympani. It's a bony ridge, as you know, that uh, prevented Clark and his colleagues from inserting their multi-channel electrodes in the axis that they wished to achieve. By doing the bony cochleostomy, uh, this problem was overcome and it was possible to more directly approach the axis of the scala. That uh, technique uh, has certain downsides and those are that as traditionally performed it requires drilling directly into the cochlea and uh, the potential for perilymph escape, inadvertent suctioning of perilymph, and the entrance of bone dust and blood into the uh, cochlea. The round window approach uh, theoretically is less traumatic but has certain limitations as well. By making an incision in the round window membrane, the egress of perilymph and the ingress of bone, uh, dust, and blood is limited. However, uh, not all round window membranes are oriented in a direction which allows them to be adequately used. And this was first highlighted by Briggs and Tychoczynski and their colleagues who showed that with some round window membrane orientations, insertion would result in impaction of the electrode into the osteospiral lamina or medialis. And for that reason, they felt that bony cochleostomy was preferable. And over the years, different uh, well-established neurotologists and cochlear implant surgeons have chosen one or the other. And for the most part, they chose that depending on what device they used. If they tended to use a heavier, straighter, or precurved electrode, they preferred to use the bony cochleostomy. 
and in fact, with good reason. On the other hand, it's not that the bony cochleostomy is superior, it's just superior in those cases. Other uh, surgeons using a finer straight electrode that was more delicate preferred a round window insertion. And uh, in cases where the anatomy was was adequate for insertion, that that became a superior technique for that group of surgeons. And as I said, being redundant here, neither technique is inherently better than the other. But if we look at two factors, we can choose which electrode, uh, which technique to use. One is the electrode. If it's a thin, flexible electrode, the round window has some advantages. If it's a stiffer, larger, or pre-curved electrode, then bony cochleostomy has some advantages. The other thing to look at is the anatomy of the patient. If the round window membrane is angled so much that the uh, round window membrane appears to be small and uh, in fact appears to be less than the diameter of a one millimeter diamond used as a surrogate for measuring the angle, then it's better to insert into the bony cochleostomy. However, if it's a nice laterally facing round window membrane and appears larger than a one millimeter diamond, then uh, it is an ideal place to insert a thin flexible electrode. Moving on to more difficult operative scenarios, what is your approach to dealing with a perilymph gusher after cochleostomy? I have I have seen quite a number of these and operated on quite a number. Uh, I believe that number is about 80. And in that group, uh, been able to always avoid a, uh, a CSF drain, a lumbosacral drain. And I feel it's important to avoid that because if you put it in before you pack the gusher, after the electrode's inserted and you're, and you're finished packing, before you finish packing, if you put a drain in, you don't know whether you really have an adequate packing in place or not, because you've taken the pressure off of it. If you wait until you have adequate packing in place and you can demonstrate that even with a deep sigh from the anesthesiologist, the uh, leak is, is completely stopped, then you don't need to put the drain in. So either way, it's something uh, I think to be avoided. Uh, I tend to make cochleostomies a little bit larger when there's a perilymph leak, uh, a perilymph gusher during the procedure, so that I can uh, put packing in all the way around the uh, electrode and within the cochleostomy, so that it forms sort of a, a, a champagne cork shape. It spreads out on the inside a little bit. And the greater the pressure becomes with a cough or a strain, the more it spreads out and prevents leakage. On occasion, it's been necessary to um, pack off leaks which are actually occurring from the oval window. Uh, these may initially appear to be a bubble of, of uh, endosteum being pushed up by the pressure through a hole in the foot plate or in the fistula antifenestrum area, 
and eventually those will leak. So it's, it's important to uh, pack those off. You can either pack it, pack uh, fascia into the obturator foramen, or you can uh, lay it on top of the mucosally denuded part of the uh, fistula. There have been times when I've had to actually pack the when I've had to actually pack the uh, vestibule independently of the cochleostomy to stop the leak. And one case in particular where it was necessary to connect the vestibule and the cochleostomy and fill the entire area with uh, muscle and fascia to stop the leak. That was the worst case and the one I came closest to putting a drain in. Uh, none of these uh, cases had CSF drainage afterwards. In the presence of cochlear ossification due to, for example, labyrinthitis ossificans or otosclerosis, what strategies do you employ to allow successful insertion of a cochlear implant electrode? Well, we, we follow a, a three-step approach to that. And the first step uh, takes care of most cases of ossification, and that's uh, commonly called a drill-through procedure. We can drill about eight millimeters into scala tympani following the abnormal bone within the scala. And um, as uh, it's been demonstrated, most bone formation occurs adjacent to the inner surface of the round window membrane for two reasons. One is that uh, otitic labyrinthitis often travels through the round window me uh, membrane to that very spot. And the other is that the vestibular aqueduct opens at that very spot. Well, these are the two most common causes of uh, labyrinthitis uh, associated with ossification. So we try to drill through this uh, area, and if it's less than eight millimeters, we come to open lumen and we can insert. In step two, we go for the uh, scale of vestibular approach. The scale of vestibular uh, is opened about one millimeter superior to the uh, place where you would put a bony cochleostomy. So it's in the anterior superior uh, area, i.e. the round window niche. Um, if sc scala vestibuli tends to ossify later than scala tympani, so you may find that it's completely patent and you can do a full insertion without difficulty through scala vestibuli. If scala vestibuli is also ossified, it's more frequently ossified near the vestibule. So we can um, try a drill through there as well. If it's not possible to drill through either of these areas, then uh, the third option consists of two possibilities. One is a drill-out procedure, and the other is a split array. The split array is used more commonly at this time, and uh, an electrode carrier with the electrodes divided into two uh, very small and delicate uh, carriers uh, can be placed uh, with the longer arm, if you're using that type of split array, in the uh, drill through tunnel that was created in the scale of the timpani area. The second arm can then be placed 
in the second turn, looking for a possible retrograde insertion, uh, beginning just anterior to the uh, oval window. What are the limitations to totally implantable cochlear implants? And given these, how far away do you feel a totally implantable cochlear implant is? Well, for a long time, the two difficulties with an implant, totally implantable cochlear implant have been developing a battery with uh, long-term possibilities of recharging. And number two, developing a microphone, which uh, could be placed inside the body somewhere. The uh, first really uh, good try at this demonstrated a couple of things. One is that we really don't have the battery technology that we need at this time. And two, that the hearing uh, outcomes of patients who are listening through their totally implanted device are not as good as they are when they're listening through the same device connected to an external speech processor. So uh, those are the two things that need to be fixed. We need that, that microphone needs to stop picking up bodily noises uh, that interfere with hearing. It needs to become more sensitive. Uh, this will probably be successful uh, when the microphones are uh, attached in the middle ear space, uh, preferably to one of the ossicles. The, uh, the battery problem is a problem of uh, great need in many uh, battery-driven human devices. And so uh, I'm very hopeful that uh, battery engineers will come up with a good solution that does not cause heating and leakage and other possible causes of damage. Now we'll move on to the final part of the interview, something called the final word. It is a chance for you to either reiterate something important that we've already covered, talk about something important that we've missed, or talk about some important future directions. So for the final word, I'll hand over to you, Professor Balcony. Well, thank you very much. I think your questions have been very insightful. And, um, you know, there, there are just a few things uh, that we might talk about. Uh, one has to do with hearing preservation in general. For a long time, hearing preservation has been uh, a marker of good surgical technique and really nothing more than a hope that it would improve outcomes. But uh, recently, some very good studies have shown that preservation of residual hearing is associated with better cochlear implant outcomes. So that, that's a major step forward, and that's, that's very recent. Um, another is that we need to continue to develop better electrodes and better surgical techniques to reduce the amount of electrode insertion trauma if we're going to uh, uh, continue to get better at preserving residual hearing. One of the things that can help us with that is the use of pharmaceuticals. And right now, steroids and growth hormones have been very effective with that. Anti-inflammatory and anti-apatotic agents are also being tried. And um, I'm a proponent of the use of 
localized hypothermia uh, as well uh, to reduce uh, inflammation and apoptosis that occur with electrode insertion in the same way that it's been shown to be effective uh, with uh, closed head injury. Thank you very much for talking with us today, Professor Balcony. Thank you very much. It's good to talk with you.